Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Natalie Massif, Neolife Research Manager, and I am excited to welcome you all to our call topic today about men's health. And as a registered dietitian nutritionist, there are a lot of common concerns that I've worked with, both men and women alike. But today we're planning to focus more on men's health and a lot of questions that may arise from men about what they're most concerned about. And it's June. Time is flying by so fast. I can't believe this year just went by fast. And it's an important time because June is actually Men's Health Month. And this time we want to reach awareness of different issues that do afflict men specifically. And these issues may, di um, may differ and vary depending on ethnicity or other lifestyle factors or other conditions that do affect men. And today we want to talk about what men are most fearful of or what conditions may affect men at different rates than women. Today's six topics that we plan to talk about today related to men's health include weight management, cardiovascular disease, reproductive health, number three, number four being prostate health, and number five, muscle development and retention. And lastly, we want to talk about stress management. I'm actually here with Scientific Advisory Board member, Director John Miller, who has over 50 years of experience researching, developing, and marketing over 500 products, and this number is a lot higher than I've listed here. We're thrilled to have his expertise in our Neolife family, and we have a lot to discuss, right, John? Oh, that's right, uh, Natalie. Um, you know, it's a surprisingly broad category um, to dig into, and I'm really happy to be here with you digging into it. I don't think that I think we tend to lump people together all and say these are men and these are women, but we don't take a look much deeper beyond those sort of really big and bold categories. Yet in both cases, there's a lot of information, a lot of good value um, people can get and the public can use and our distributors can convey to people. Uh, when you start looking at subgroups within that group of men, and uh, it's going to be fun digging in and talking about some of this stuff. So it's great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm glad. And definitely what you touched upon, we, we want to implement and we want to integrate these healthy lifestyle changes for young men to grow up and be healthy adults, but we also want men, adult men, to maintain their health status. There are alarming statistics, as always. Uh, boys and men in the U.S. actually die 5.6 years earlier than women, and they die at higher rates from nine of the top ten leading causes of death. So this is a topic that we definitely want to discuss. And Information from the Office of Minority Health in the United States has talked about the five top things that men can do to keep themselves at their best. And it's pretty simple, but we want to emphasize this throughout our call as well. One thing being eating a variety of fruits and vegetables and making sure to exercise 30 minutes a day and having regular checkups, those preventative screenings. And smoking is still pretty common among men, so quit smoking. And seeking out help when life does get tough. So those are some recommendations that are provided. But generally, things we want to talk about, and being a nutritionist, dietitian, the common things I've discussed with people is most people do tend to have too many calories. We talk about being overfed, but even if you're overfed, you may be undernourished because you're not consuming enough of the foods that you need, and maybe the foods you're consuming are not nutrient-dense. So that's where we're getting too little nutrition. These are the big issues that we're going to discuss. Typically, we continue, continually hear about how we are consuming too much fat, too many added sugars in our foods, and we hear about ultra-high processed foods 
that tend to have high sodium and high fat, and that's what tends to make them maybe taste delicious, but they are not exactly great for us. So this is, as a dietitian and as a person in nutrition, we all hear about, we want to focus on that nutrient density. So, yeah. John, um, are there any things that you wanted to add to that as well? well? Yeah, you know, you're right, Natalie. The, surprisingly enough, for all of the years that we've been learning and talking and digging into this relationship between um, nutrition and health and the prevalence of disease compared to uh, the uh, prevalence of health and vitality throughout life, um, continues to come up with the same things. But surprisingly enough, even simple nutrients are still not getting done in the diet really well. I was looking at some information from the Linus Pauling Institute. It's an assessment of the, the nutrient intake in the human population based on data done by government researchers. And it's really pretty amazing. Not that some progress hasn't been made, but considering how bright we are and how much the food supply is readily available, it's a little alarming. Um, you know, uh, the, the fact is, and it's well established, that um, people in America, Canadians, Americans, wherever you are in North America and probably around the world, simply don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. In the United States, 75% of the U.S. population fails to meet the minimum recommendations for fruit intake and 80% for vegetable intake. And when you think of the roles that they play and the nutrients they provide, that tells a really big story. Not even going on to talk about whole grains and so on and so forth, those other nutrients like omega-3s that, that we simply don't get enough of. In this Linus Pauling Institute data, they point out some things that are that are pretty alarming. For example, 90, almost 95% of the U.S. population don't get the daily minimum of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. plays really important roles in the body. We talk about calcium utilization and so on, but it plays many other roles. Another big surprise is nearly 90% of the population, actually about 88 and a half, um, don't get the minimum amount of vitamin E. 52% don't get enough magnesium, 44% don't get enough calcium, 43% don't get enough vitamin A, and 39% don't get enough vitamin C. Now, think about that for a moment. Vitamin C is bone simple to get. Okay, <laughs> there's lots of vitamin. If you're eating fruits and vegetables, you're going to get pretty good vitamin C, but it's, you know, it's not like you have to go a long way to find enough vitamin C. Uh, if you don't find it at your uh, at local supermarket, you can certainly find help with that from your, your local meal life distributor. But the thing that's alarming about that is not like these are brand new ideas. We are 50, 60 years down the road of trying to get people to see the importance of this, and we're just not making headway. And I think part of the reason is that as important as food is, we become maybe too much food dominant in our policies about how to address these issues and not actually getting people to embrace the idea that for big portions of the population, especially for things like vitamin C and magnesium and so on and so forth, dietary supplementation is a viable way to fill those gaps and can then um, help you fight off these nutrient deficiencies, these abundances and excesses of being overfed and undernourished that not only leave you exposed but are the primary drivers of the chronic disease epidemic that we're experiencing. Yeah, that, that's true. It's, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people who have these large nutrient gaps, and the data does show that men and women have are not meeting the requirements for fruits and vegetables. You can probably look at your own diet, one's own diet of the day. Maybe that we're not eating the sufficient amount. The same, again, goes with whole grains. 
And actually, in looking deeper into both the male and female difference, we can, we've seen that older women, ages 50 to 70, are actually closer in meeting the minimum intake for fruit. So female population may have a better rate of reaching the vegetable recommendation as well. So we, there are differences between men and women, and there's something to address. How can we help with um, men filling that gap that they may have? And oh, John, what do you, in relation to this, people not consuming enough fruits and vegetables, how can this in, impact their phytonutrient intake? That's another thing that also falls in that. Yeah, well, you know, phytonutrients, the things that you get from plants, phyto, the fruits and vegetables and, and the like, play fundamental roles in the human body. The thing that's interesting about them is that they are not recognized as dietarily essential nutrients for the most part, so you don't see RDAs and things like that on labels. Um, yet, biochemically, your body is dependent upon a really broad array of those things, whether it's carotenoids, and there are a bunch of them in the food, or flavonoids or polyphenols, and there are a bunch of them. We know from investigating those things that they play roles individually and synergistically in the body to promote healthful body functions, uh, balancing um, immune capacity or dealing with oxidation or inflammation or the degradatory processes, metabolic processes that lead to things like cognitive decline. The absence or presence of these things in the diet are known to influence uh, how those things are going to progress. So it's really important that people begin to get the message, people in general. But I think that, um, you know, it's probably, I won't say more important for men, but men need to pay a little more attention, I think, to the reality that, um, <laughs> right or wrong, we have a higher probability of having disease-related problems that cause our life to be maybe up to five years shorter than our female counterparts, and that um, we need to start taking some action to do that. There are things we can do to address that. We don't have to idly sit by and just accept that, you know, women are going to live five years longer than men. There's nothing that says that that needs to be the case. Um, and that there's a lot that says there are things that we can do to offset that. So that's what we're going to talk a bit about today. Yes, and that's what we're excited to discuss more about men's health biggest concerns. And the fact is 12% of men are considered to have poor or fair health. And thinking that early on, if you're a young adult, young adult male, and having poor health, and you're going to progressively have more risk of diseases and really lower the quality of your life. And that's Something important to consider. So, uh, uh, so John, what, what, can you tell us more about the differences of men's health and how this may be affected by ethnicity or things that may differ among different ages? And yeah, well, you know, I think the, the word men, you know, we think of the word woman, and you know, my tendency is to think of something extremely complicated. <laughs> Not from necessarily just a biochemical perspective, but, but I think you see the same sort of thing in men. The category men has got many sort of subcategories to it. Um, there are big differences between men uh, of different backgrounds, of different ethnic uh, origins, of uh, different family histories, different ages, and so on and so forth, that, that influence how... Um, the things that we need to pay attention to, how we need to take action specifically for us uh, as individuals. Before I get to citing some really scary facts about ethnicity and, <laughs> and uh, the risk of disease for men, I'd like to just hit on a few little sort of highlights here, some things that maybe 
men don't know about themselves and women probably don't know about men either. Some recent studies that have been done um, show surprisingly things like 81% of the men uh, in this population study were able to remember the make and model of their first car but couldn't remember their last visit to the doctor. So, guys, there's a message there. Um, maybe that five-year difference has got something to do with the fact that we don't actually pay the attention that we should. Um, there's another stat that goes with this that says that, 80, uh, that women are 100% more likely to visit their doctor for an annual examination for, print, for preventive services than a man is. Again, another little note there, guys, that maybe the ladies have got something on us here with this ability or, or maybe more focus on taking care of themselves. Um, another nice thing that I found out, I don't know that it's nice so much as you probably didn't realize it, but men are 20 times more likely to be colorblind than women, which might have something to say why we are not maybe as fashion conscious and, <laughs> as we might otherwise be. And here's a nice little fact, too, that men suffer hearing loss at two times the rate of women. So, ladies, when your husband or your significant other out there, your brother or whoever it might be, says that they didn't hear you when you were speaking, maybe they actually didn't hear you when you were speaking. So lots of interesting little differences. But when it comes to ethnicity, there are some things that really stand out for men. You know, we know that men are at higher risk of disease than, than women. We know that we die younger than women, That, and when we do die, we die at a greater rate from nine of the top ten um, causes of mortality, causes of death amongst the population. So it's sort of like the, card is, the cards are stacked against us. But here's a few things to consider about ethnic differences, meaning where you come from uh, genetically. Um, just to take diabetes, for example, we know diabetes is a big problem, and it's a big problem for men and women alike across the population, huge numbers. But in the case of diabetes, um, Asian Americans are 1.2 times more likely to have a problem with diabetes than, than the rest of the population. African American men, for African American men, they are 1.5 times more likely to have issues with diabetes. And for American Indians and Alaska Natives and what the Canadians would uh, refer to, I think, as First Nation people, it's up to 1.8 times the diabetes risk of the population in general. So though when you see little ethnic differences, not that those are little differences, but they're, you still got the same biochemistry going on. It manifests itself with maybe some different sort of physical features, but essentially it's the same. But that ethnicity, that background is, is a, a factor that sort of skews the data um, against that particular type of person. So if you're in that category and you're worried about diabetes or you're not even worried about diabetes, but pre-diabetes, you should pay attention that your ethnic background is a driving uh, force in that. Another thing is um, if you're Hispanic. Now, generally Hispanics, generally men in the population, you know, the number one killer is heart disease, the number two killer is, is cancer. Um, but then when you get down looking at the data, the data changes rather dramatically. And in the case of the Hispanic males, Hispanic males are 30% more likely to suffer from a stroke than the rest of the male population in general. So, and that shows across that particular demographic. It's not like just a small number of, of bits of data at the point of this, but large bits of information, lots, thousands and thousands and thousands of subjects 
proved that to be the case. So, you know, the males are not all the same based upon these sorts of things. There's also a few lifestyle factors that make it different, you know. Uh, there are vegan men, and because they're vegan, they have different uh, probabilities, nutritional needs, and different risk factors for um, uh, taking care of themselves. Perhaps not the fruit and vegetable equation, but certainly uh, getting enough vitamin B12 and enough omega-3s, which typically would come from fish in, in large quantities, they sort of have those challenges. And then additionally, um, men who are athletes or, you know, very, very active, have a real high-level intensity job, maybe you're a forest fire and a forest firefighter in the summertime or something to that effect, all of these things put greater demands and put greater risks on on men's biochemistry and their nutritional needs, but also put greater demands on them. So, so it's not all one-size-fits-all when it comes to men. Those are a lot of interesting facts that you brought in, a lot of interesting differences that there may be, kind of showing and emphasizing that preventative screening, especially if you may be under, like, the Hispanic or African-American for diabetes might be something to consider. So as I mentioned earlier, we will be discussing a few topics, six to be exact, and first we wanted to start with weight management. And looking at each, the prevalence of Overweight and obesity is not something that's uncommon, and you probably hear about it a million times a week, but it's still really alarming to see the statistics where 70% of people are considered overweight or obese, but specifically for men, 74% of men are considered overweight and obese compared to around 67% of women, and 40% of people are considered obese. So this issue is increasing. It's not, it hasn't really changed too much, but Along with overweight and obesity, we see the issue of diabetes. These two come hand in hand, and the prevalence of pre-diabetes is very common, but unfortunately, people do not even know that they're pre-diabetic. And at this point, it's essential to really create behavior change, really change the way of your diet, your physical activity, because you can actually reverse it. And clients who I've had that have been in pre-diabetic stage, a 5 to 7% weight loss can change can reverse pre-diabetes, pre so you won't enter the diabetes realm. But, uh, John, what do, you, what do you have more information well, about? Well, you know, management? yeah, weight management is fundamental. I think that we, when you and I talked about setting this call up, we talked about things we wanted to, to address and the order in which we would address them, and I think we agreed that making weight management the first thing on the list is because when your weight is not managed properly, where you're not in control of your weight, and maybe even it's in control of you, all these other things sort of are impacted by it. For example, if you are overweight, you're at higher probability of diabetes. If you are overweight and at higher probability of diabetes, you are at higher probability of heart disease. If you are overweight and at higher probability of heart diabetes and heart disease, you're probably likely, especially if you're younger, to be experiencing reproductive health issues. Mm -hmm. Then that can rotate and rotate into prostate health issues and so on. So having, being able to manage your weight within a, a, a healthy range, there's a thing called a BMI. You can, apps are free on every smartphone you've got out there and you can just put in your height and weight and it'll tell you. You want to be right around 25 or less is really would be would be best. Um, I can tell you from experience 
<laughs> that hitting 25 is uh, is an issue. I'm about a 25.7, and I have to work pretty good to get to that. And my goal is to get to 25. I'm healthy, but it's just a nice number to know that I'm my BMI is where it's supposed to be. I tend to be a data guy when it comes to health, so that's just another bit of data that I can put in my file. But weight management is is fundamental to all of these things, so it's important that we do that. Now, there's a, a few things that we can do to help you with weight management. We have a really good um, Neolife uh, weight loss program, you know, clinically tested and proven to be effective. It's not something that you're going to you know, started on Saturday and by Sunday you'll have dropped 60 pounds and be able to get back into your bathing suit. It's something that's going to set you on a course that allows you to reset your metabolism and start working towards a new lifestyle. And you need to work towards it. Things that come for free generally don't last, okay? So if you think you can lose weight by taking some pill and dropping 20 pounds of water weight and looking on the scale and saying, gosh, the scale tells me I look better but I don't feel better, that's that's a trap. That's a mistake. You didn't get to be overweight overnight, and you won't get to be back to the right weight overnight. It means that you have to adopt a program. The thing about the Neolife Weight Loss Program is that's what it's about. It's about taking off that a little bit of weight every day that adds up in weeks, in months. But it's also not just about losing the pounds. It's about losing the body mass size, right? I remember a time when I said, I don't care what the scale says as long as I look great, you know. So well, that's fine to a point. But you really want to have the two working together. You know, you want to have uh, your weight where you want it to be, and you want to have your, your how you look, your size of your arms and thighs and so on and so forth, your anthropomorphic measure, anthropometric measure, rather, um, all together and all that. So weight is the foundation for everything, and we have a really good thing to help you with that. On the diabetes side of that equation, you're right, Natalie. There was a time when it was thought that you don't come back from diabetes. When somebody says you've got diabetes, you've got it for life, and that they wanted to prescribe you some diabetes medication for life, like metformin or something like that, or maybe any number of other drugs, and the deal was you were going to take them for life. The reason is that they were addressing the symptom but not the cause. But when you address the cause of diabetes, the things that are driving it to be present in the first place, then you can actually pull back from that diagnosis of diabetes that was once a line in the sand sort of semi-death sentence. And there's lots of evidence ways to do that. Weight management is a great way to do that. You know, if you lose weight, for every every pound you lose, it's a 3 or 4% reduction in risk of, of diabetes. And, and we have some tools that help you get there with the weight loss problem. We also have some tools that help you manage your blood glucose levels, which can be a problem uh, with uh, glucose balance. Uh, blood glucose levels can be a problem, and it can help you address that as well. So we have a couple of solutions that, that people should try, but, you know, weight management is core. John, for people who may not know, can you briefly describe the Neolife Weight Loss Program? Sure. Neolife Weight Loss Program is um, pretty straightforward. The, the, the idea is to uh, sort of reset your metabolism. So a lot of people get become overweight because of what they eat and how they eat and when they eat, okay? There's a lot of uh, evidence out there that says one of the worst things you can do to maintain your weight is skip your breakfast, okay? 
Um, the reason being is that when you get up in the morning, your body is in is sort of a bio biochemical bionutrient bioactive nutrient deficit because you might have been sleeping but your body wasn't. It was busy doing things, so it's depleted certain things that are going on. And by not giving it a, a good sort of break fast, a good breakfast, um, you set it up for weight gain. You set yourself up for um, what we call the glycemic roller coaster. Uh, the thing about the glycemic roller coaster, when you oscillate between hyperglycemia, too much blood glucose, and hypoglycemia, you send a lot of strange signals to your body. And you can actually wake up in the morning and fall into hypoglycemia, too little blood sugar, and actually start that roller coaster. So um, the program is designed to create sort of metabolic stability. It's the idea of starting out with a very rich, high-protein breakfast and then having a similar sort of meal at lunch, and then having a, a, a weight management smart, nice natural meal at the end of the day, whether it's grilled chicken breast or salmon or whatever it might be, lots of fruits and vegetables and those sorts of things. The idea is to start to retrain your body to live on and thrive on what it's supposed to. Most of us don't realize that through the consumption of the things that have made the population overweight, obese, or clinically obese in a lot of cases, those things have changed your body in a way slowly that you probably don't even recognize, but the loss of vitality and energy and vigor in all of those things sort of goes down that path. And getting back to that requires that, that you sort of break that habit and re-imprint. And the rewards will be tremendous. The rewards will be not only will you lose pounds and lose dimensions where you get become smaller, but your energy levels, your vitality levels, your sense of vigor, and those things will increase, which puts you in a higher probability of doing a little exercise. And you know what? If you control your, your diet with a really good high-protein, high-fruit-and-vegetable-controlled uh, program and exercise something, you're going to win that battle. Thank you for summarizing that, John. And I like that you brought in that, you know, how important breakfast is and the weight management program is a great way to basically kickstart for those who may not be eating breakfast. It's a great way to ease into that routine. So that covers number one, our first topic. And now we're going to move on to our second topic that we wanted to discuss about what are other men's health concerns and it's heart disease. Probably not surprising to many of you, but Heart disease and cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of men, and it's the second cause of death among men, uh, which actually is cancer. Um, but this is followed by other causes of death, including unintentional injuries and stroke, diabetes, and suicide. But number one of this list is heart disease. And heart health is very important because, in reality, heart health and heart disease, it, this can be prevented by healthy lifestyle, lifestyle choices. And men tend to develop heart disease 10 to 15 years earlier than women, but are also likely to die from it in the prime of their life. And we're talking about risk factors. So what may be some risk factors for men? A lot, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, include poor hygiene, which is one that I, when I read the list, okay, so this is a risk factor for heart disease. But it's true. So for those men out there, this is something you can change. But also stress is a big one high blood cholesterol and high blood pressure. But of course, on the list is poor diet. When your diet is high in salt, it's high in sugar. 
if you're smoking or if you have diabetes or if you're considered obese, this is going to increase uh, the incidence or the risk of you having or getting heart disease later in life. Yep. Yes, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that heart disease is such a big problem. It has been a big problem for a long time. It's another one of those situations where I wonder if the messaging that we've been trying to get to the population is actually working. Certainly in terms of smoking, smoking has has diminished quite a lot over the last uh, decade or so, which is a good thing because smoking is a big driver of heart and cardiovascular disease and cancer and other diseases as well. But... Um, the, the thing that, about heart disease I think that, that is most surprising to me is that we're not making more headway in the population in terms of its behavior. We know what the drivers of heart disease are in the diet. We know that if you have a high-fat diet and a high-sodium diet and a high-sugar diet, we all, we all know that that's a bad thing, okay? Yet we continue to consume that stuff. Now, when you look at the trends, I like to look at trends. That's big databases that tell you where things are going. And they change over time. And I was recently reading an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association's cardiology uh, section. And there were some interesting things going on. I'll give you a little background. You know, um, from, say, starting in 2000, we started tracking what was going on with, with the occurrence of cardiovascular mortality. That's people dying from cardiovascular disease. Not people getting it, but people dying from it. Okay, and what they showed is that between 2000 and 2011, there was about a 3.6% decline in um, the uh, cardiovascular mortality. In other words, fewer people as a percentage were dying from cardiovascular disease. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. When you look back at the data, you see that part of that was fewer people were smoking, which would naturally equate to a lower risk of cardiovascular mortality. Um, you would find that there were better and earlier intervention techniques, pharmaceuticals, um, surgical procedures, <laughs> all of these sort of stints and things like that that they, the medical community can do to save you at the very end. So those things changed. What was Alarming to me, though, is when you take the trend into the next window from 2011 to 2014, the trend changed rather dramatically. I'll give you an example. For males, the, the trend of decline from cardiovascular mortality was about 3.9% in that 2000-2011 window. In the 2011-2014 to 2014 window, that had dropped to just 0.23%, meaning that the trend line was changing. Now, there's a lot of things that you can speculate about what that would be, um, but when you look at the, the, the data from the entire population, you look at background trends. So what do we know about what's happening in that 2000 to 2014 window? Well, what's happening is there was an explosion of diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, in the population. And we know that as the numbers have ramped up in that now coming up nearly 20 years uh, in today's time, um, that the occurrence of diabetes in the population was going up rapidly. That's a reflection of the occurrence of overweight and obesity in the population. So it goes like this. People become overweight and obese. So as they age and go through the population, more of them uh, succumb to or become at risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So, and 
uh, or for diabetes rather. So starts with obesity, then goes to diabetes, then goes to heart disease. So the change in heart disease uh, trend lines is probably due to the influence of diabetes in the background. So we can look at that and say as the diabetes trend lines continue to point upward, meaning that more and more people are at risk of it, we can expect that the cardiovascular disease trend lines will as well. And very likely, the declines that we made in the early part of this uh, century through medical interventions, better drugs, and smoking cessation are likely to be lost to uh, diabetes. It's driven by the overweight and obesity, as, as Natalie said. 70% of the population is overweight or obese. Think about that for a moment, 70%. So if there's 300 million people, 210 million of them are overweight or obese. And when you plot that out over time, that is not a pretty story. So it's a big thing. So now there's a couple of other things that I want to interject here, if that's okay, because I, I, I tend to look at data a little bit differently. This is, this is something that goes, first of all, we all know what heart disease is all about, right? Heart disease is about too much fat and, and uh, too little good stuff. You get saturated fat, you produce too much cholesterol, you don't have the, the antioxidants and the anti-inflammatory nutrients, the so things like carotenoids and flavonoids and cruciferous compounds and vitamin C and vitamin E and all of those sorts of things, along with the, the fundamental good lipids, things like omega-3 fats that sort of counterbalance that and maintain inflammation inflammatory balance. So we all know that that's what's going on, and we all know that Neolife has got solutions to that, clinically proven solutions. Our carotenoid complex was tested and proven by the researchers at the U.S. Department of Agriculture to actually reduce oxidative actions, oxidative attacks that occur on lipids in the blood, in particular uh, the LDL cholesterol molecule. They showed that when carotenoid complex was present, those oxidative impacts on that molecule are, are reduced. The reason that's important is it's oxidative modification of the LDL cholesterol molecule that is a primary contributor to the formation of plaque. Hmm. Okay, pretty interesting. Um, so we think of plaque, the things that builds up, that causes atherosclerosis, that plugs up our arteries, is a real important thing. And we know that that combination is driven by oxidative stress and too much too much of these bad fats in our diet and not enough of the good ones. What we know also is that the relationship between bad fats is not just about the bad fats being bad in, the, in a biochemical sense. In your background, the bad fats tend to be pro-inflammatory fats, and the good fats like omega-3s are anti-inflammatory fats. So we know that inflammation is a driver of disease, okay? We know that that's absolutely sure. We know that these background relationships between inflammatory forces and anti-inflammatory forces in the body are a primary driver of heart disease. We know also that in a healthy balance, for every three molecules of an uh, inflammatory fat, you should have one molecule of omega-3s. That would be a, a healthy balance. We also know that in reality, in the typical Western diet, for, there's 20 of these inflammatory fats for every one molecule of, of the anti-inflammatory omega-3. So all of this stuff sort of pushes us down the road. Not news, okay? <laughs> Not news. And we have a lot of, of products that can help with that, things like uh, salmon oil plus, which has also been shown to be heart-healthy in clinical trials, and a lipotrophic adjunct, which is shown to help balance the relationships between 
pro-inflammatory forces, in particular the prostaglandin cascade and homocysteine cycles that uh, relate to the management of that, um, those issues, that, those systems in the body. All of those things are, are really important. But here's a little bit of late-breaking news. This comes from the April 2019, actually May 23, 2019 uh, issue of um, the journal Nutrition, Metabolism, and Cardiovascular Disease. There's a lot of journals out there, but this one's particularly good. This looks at this is about this is a men focused thing and it focuses on men forty something. So you forty somethings out there and even you thirty somethings and fifty somethings and twenty somethings, think about what I'm gonna tell you here in just a moment. Okay. This study was a multi center study. It was done in different types of people, different ethnic backgrounds across a, a wide array of um, uh, ethnic diversity. To give you a little idea of the 998 that were there, 300 of these folks were Caucasian-American men, 101 were African-American men, 287 were Japanese-American men, and 310 were Japanese men. So it gives you a good sort of background is that this applies across a wide, a wide spectrum. What they looked at is we don't, you know, when we think of heart disease, we think of our arteries getting plugged up. Well, you know, that's one way. But do you ever think of what's going on with your aorta? with your aortic valves. There's this thing called aortic calcification. It's a natural process that builds up over time where the, the, literally the buildup of calcium on valves. But those valves become inefficient at dealing with their job, which is opening and closing and letting things go in and out of the heart in a regular healthy way. So what this showed for these 998 men, that for a great number of them, 57% in fact, were already experiencing some degree of aortic calcification in their 40s. Now, this is a serious thing. But what they also showed is that those men who had the highest levels of omega-3s in general, and DHA in particular, had the lowest aortic calcification scores. So what they're saying is that the omega-3 DHA, where it EPA has a different way of protecting your heart and certainly is important in protecting your heart. DHA has a way that we weren't expecting, and that is that it tends to help um, block or inhibit the development of aortic calcification, which is really critical to heart function. So these sorts of things um, we've known about for quite a while at the SAB. One of the drivers of, that caused us when we um, brought out Salmon Oil Plus to bias the the formula a little more towards DHA than just the EPA that was there before, was evidence like this. And over time, that evidence has manifested itself into real solid data that shows that um, we made the right decision. That having all eight of the omega-3 fatty acids there is very, very important, but having a DHA bias is also very important. This concludes part one for Men's Health Protocol. Stay tuned next week for part two. Bye.